from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? While we're all coming to terms with our stay-at-home existence, health risks, and nose-diving economy, we've brought together a distinguished panel to discuss the unique, somewhat uncharted roads of governance, let alone constitutional rights and obligations that exist during a pandemic. Welcome to a Corona-focused edition of Politics Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis, here alone in a sanitized studio in Malibu, California. My co-hosts here, well, not really here, but remotely connected via Zoom, starting with our Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, author, and professor, our socially distant database of everything historical, Ed Larson. Hey, Ed, how you doing? Great to hear you again. <laughs> and also from her home, Jane Albrecht, our well-researched protector of common sense and critical thinking. Jane is an international trade attorney who has represented U.S. interests in Washington and Europe, Russia, and then some. She's worked on numerous presidential campaigns, and frankly, she's our resident conscience. Our special guest and constitutional authority, Adam Winkler. He's a lauded professor at UCLA Law School. He's a specialist in American constitutional law and the Supreme Court. He's published award-winning books like We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights, which feeds into some of our subjects today, as well as Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, which is remarkably independent, meet-me-in-the-middle sort of an approach, and he can be found on CNN, ABC, and Face the Nation. And now he's finally made it. He's on politics. Meet me in the middle. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Uh, Adam, before we really get started, we understand you're also a child star. You had a role as the son of Robert De Niro and Liza Minnelli. I'm not sure how you ever survived their upbringing on uh, New York, New York. Why did you go the law route rather than Hollywood? Right. I mean, uh, I grew up in a Hollywood family. And in fact, everyone in my family, is, my immediate family, is in the entertainment business with the exception of me. I was uh, in a movie uh, directed by Martin Scorsese starring Robert De Niro and Liza Minnelli, a movie called New York, New York. I don't know, having worked with Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro, I kind of feel like I peaked at a very early age and there was nothing left for me in the industry. Getting back down to business, Ed, we usually like to start this kind of discussion off with you. And I'd like to talk about your latest op-ed in The Hill about continuing on with our elections in the wake of a pandemic. Do you really envision that if we're on some kind of, I don't know, semblance of safer at home or social distancing, we should or even can proceed with a timely election? Sure. We certainly have a lot of free time and we can vote by mail. Look, we held presidential elections and federal elections at the height of the Civil War, at the height of the World War II, during World War I, during the Spanish flu. We held them all those times and they all worked. It is the lifeblood of our democracy. We wouldn't be America without elections. The Constitution, in fact, requires them. Jane or Adam, can you describe how you would see this election playing out? I'm having trouble seeing this as a workable environment. My understanding is that if there is no election, that as of January 20th or 21st, 2021, Trump and Pence would no longer be president and vice president, at which point you would probably have the person who would take over would be the Speaker of the House, which in this case is Nancy Pelosi. Ed, can you comment on that? Sure. Jane's correct. The Constitution is absolutely clear. The terms of our president and vice president by the Constitution end on January 20. There's another federal statute that says the federal elections 
must occur on the first Tuesday after November 1st. Now, states don't have to use election to pick their electors. They could do it by their legislators. They could do it any way they want to. But if they use elections, it has to occur in this year, November 3rd. There's no choice about that. There's no way to change the Constitution because that has to be by constitutional amendment. The only way to change the federal statutes of when these things have to happen is by an act of Congress passed by both House of Congress and signed by the president. So, Adam, I wonder if we could bring you in here, and I'd like to ask you, do you think that we're in for a repeat of the 2000 Bush-Gore election where the Supreme Court's going to have to decide who our next president is or whether or not this election was properly held? I do think that we are in for a repeat of Bush versus Gore. Not necessarily we're going to see the Supreme Court step in and decide the winner, as we saw in Bush versus Gore. But the underlying problems that led to the Supreme Court's intervention in that case are likely to befuddle this current election, too, especially if we have to make major changes uh, for accessibility uh, in light of the coronavirus. Um, You know, it's a problem of we don't have an election system in our United States. We have 51 election systems with the District of Columbia, uh, and every different state has its own process and its own secretary of state, and they're running things their own way. And, and that was part of the problem that led to Bush versus Gore, a sense that there was a state that was out of control. And we are, we're likely to see, uh, again, uh, wide divergences between the states in terms of how they respond to this crisis. Uh, as we've already seen uh, significant variation in how the states have responded. Uh, So uh, restructuring the election system uh, so that we have, uh, it it is a meaningful election, is going to be more of a challenge than one might uh, imagine. Whether we have a Supreme Court contest to this election or not, I do think will depend upon how close the election is. I think Trump and the, the GOP would not hesitate to challenge if it could flip the election. But to have to challenge the legitimacy of the elections in many states in order to get what they want is a political calculation that Trump may be willing to do, but even some of the GOP may be hesitant to do. I just foresee a Supreme Court process that may be a longer, more arduous, more difficult process than the one we experienced in 2000. And the thing to remember about 2000 was that it was unnecessary. Uh, You know, the Supreme Court didn't need to get involved. You know, actually, the Constitution has a whole bunch of provisions, and it's been amended on this very basis uh, since its original uh, architecture uh, to deal with contested elections. There's a whole institutional way of doing it, a process that uh, so we don't really the Supreme Court didn't need to step in. And uh, I would hope that one lesson that the justices may have learned since Bush versus Gore uh, is that they didn't need to step in beside that election and that they only did harm to themselves. Um, we'll see what happens. You know, there are principles in Bush versus Gore about uh, the presidential election not really being a federal election, that the presidential election is a state election, um, and that the states could really do almost anything they want with the, uh, the state legislature can keep it to itself. Uh, and we'll see if states move to something like that. I doubt it. I think what we're going to see is probably variation in terms of access. And that you're going to have some states that are on the front lines are going to say, we want to make it easier for people to vote, and we want to give people vote by mail, and things like that, things that they didn't already have. We've known all through American history, states have conducted voter suppression. That's what they do. 
Some suppress votes, some don't. Federal courts have never gotten involved in that. But while it is a federal election every two years, it is a state-run federal election, an absolute. I totally agree with Adam. These are ones that turned over to 51 different jurisdictions, and those jurisdictions can basically conduct them any way they want to. The one thing we can predict is that uh, this will spur some very interesting, unexpected litigation uh, raising an issue that we wouldn't have predicted in advance, uh, but that we'll be all occupied with in about six months' time. Let's hope it's a, it turns out to be a minor and insignificant one, but uh, the only for certainty is that there's going to be litigation because there are going to be changes. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with you. And this is going to be then a question for you. In our history, what are some of the circumstances where there was thought to be tremendous fraud in the paper balloting and uh, poll place voting? Well, before we had the Australian ballot, the ballots we customarily do now, you had party ballots. And there was just case after case where people would party workers in different precincts would stuff the ballots or count them a different way. You know, we've had a long history of, of problems here and there, but what they are is they were like in the, we, the election we've been talking about, 2000. What we had in 2000 was an election that literally was too close to fairly called. But when you have a, a sea change election, like the election of Reagan or Eisenhower or Roosevelt, there's no amount of cheating and tinkering that's going to affect the results. Okay, let's switch this over to Adam. I want to talk a little about the the pandemic, the laws of quarantine, what are government's powers, and things like shelter-in-place orders and civil liberties and how that relates to the Constitution. Adam, tell us, are there specific laws and constitutional rights in place for such a circumstance? Well, you know, it's surprising. Uh, we're, we live in a time in which this kind of quarantine seems like such a foreign experience to all of us. It's so bizarre. Uh, but, of course, uh, for uh, the first 120-some years of American history, uh, uh, after the founding of the Constitution, we had lots of quarantines. Uh, they weren't nationwide quite like the one we're having here. But the quarantining of vessels, quarantining of people on land who had contagious diseases, this was something that public health authorities faced all the time. And in fact, the battle to fight these contagious diseases from cholera to yellow fever, things like that, really provided uh, the real basis for the rise of government uh, in the 19th century, uh, where we see the rise of government regulation of how you can live, where telling you you have to throw out your trash in a certain way and they have to have trash disposal in a certain way. You can't slaughter animals in your home uh, and, and whatnot, all done to prevent uh, these kind of contagious diseases uh, that were early versions, if you will, of uh, coronavirus. So does our federal government have the right to shut us down kind of in a Wuhan style? Well, there's a, one of the real questions that we're seeing uh, is uh, how this pandemic affects civil liberties. There's a whole bunch of things that are happening in the pandemic that raise constitutional questions. What is the power that states uh, have to force you to stay at home, a shelter-in-place order, stop you from doing business, stop you from using your property, um, stop you from going to religious uh, assemblies, stop you from going to political assemblies? You, you couldn't do a political convention today in California if you had one scheduled because the law doesn't allow allow you to do it. Um, so that's, you know, 
it's a real constitutional right that would be in, that would be burdened in this way. Courts are shut down. We see states discriminating against other states. So there's a lot of constitutional issues that are arising. One of the interesting things is that they arise in a time of civil liberties. Uh, but the civil liberties era of American uh, jurisprudence really starts after the great influenza uh, uh, of 1918 and, and really takes off in the years immediately after that in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, we, we, we haven't thought about how these civil liberties really work in a time of uh, some kind of global pandemic. Help me understand the difference between what the federal rights and obligations are in a pandemic and what the state obligations and rights are well, in a pandemic. That's a good question, a complicated one. A complicated one, but one of the things that we definitely see is that just like we talked about with regards to Ed's uh, op-ed about voting in the November election and one of the problems that besets that kind of uh, reform in that space is that it's so many different elections that the states lead and control the electoral process. It's the same thing really with, with the pandemic. Actually, throughout most of the course of American history, you have states leading the charge in the battle against pandemics of public health crises like this. And the federal government really comes in and plays an assistant role. Does the Fed have the right to overrule the state? One of the things that we find, especially that in dealing with an emergency in a pandemic of a health crisis like this, is that the traditional limits on power really fall by the wayside. Uh, I think that while the president obviously wouldn't be able to shut down uh, traffic between states in an ordinary time, I think not only uh, would he have the ability to do it, asserting emergency powers, both under statute and under his inherent presidential powers, might suggest that this is exactly what the framers envisioned the president's emergency powers to be for. I also don't think the courts would step in and stop the president uh, from doing something like this if it was genuinely thought to be in the interest of public health and not say, you know, to enforce the provisions of the Voting Rights Act. You know, we're going to take a really quick break. Uh, I'm going to go gargle with Purell, so we'll be right back in a swallow. It will be okay. Hello out there. <laughs> this is Jenny Curtis. I am a podcast producer at Kurt Co. Media, and I am currently sitting alone in a very empty podcast studio, surrounded by hand sanitizer. <laughs> and I'm recording this in an effort to reach out. It's not an easy time right now. We don't know what the day-to-day -day is going to look like for the next few weeks, even months. So I'm proposing something. Let's all make something together. Kurt Co. Media has launched a podcast called A Moment of Your Time. These are bite-sized episodes, and each one features you out there. Go to kurtco.com slash a moment of your time for more information. We may have to stay apart, but let's create together. So what you gonna do about it? So we're back, and it turns out you're not really supposed to gargle with Purell. It tastes disgusting. Adam. POTUS named gun sellers an essential business. I wanted to see how you felt about that. Oh, well, this is one of the big issues that we're seeing uh, in terms of constitutional rights that are potentially violated in the time of pandemic. We've seen the closing and shuttering of uh, businesses that are deemed non-essential. And one of the issues in which we have seen division among the states, talk about federalism once again, is uh, over whether gun stores in particular 
are considered essential businesses or not essential businesses. I can imagine an argument for why they aren't really essential businesses. Um, at the same time, uh, you do have a constitutional right to have a firearm, and uh, the government should be very hesitant before it puts limits on those constitutional rights. So states have gone in different directions on this. I mean, one thing I do note is that it does seem like there's a lot of stores that are open that don't exactly seem like essential businesses. Um, but nonetheless, we want them to be open uh, to provide basic services. I see construction happening everywhere. There's a lot of restaurants that don't really need to be in business, but they're in business, and we kind of want them to be because otherwise they're going to go under if they don't. Um, I don't know. I think our uh, notion of what counts as an essential business is not very strong or well thought out to begin with. Well, Adam, let me put you on the spot then, because if you had written about this in your book, Gunfight, what kind of position would you have taken on this issue? Oh, very interesting. Well, I don't know. I, uh, I will say that uh, I do understand why people would want the right of self-defense in a time of crisis. I think that's a very human emotion and uh, very predictable that people will feel that way and, um, and people will want to arm up in these kinds of situations. Um, uh, at the same time, uh, people should be aware of the, the knowledge and the data that show that having a gun in your home uh, uh, makes it that you or your loved one are the most likely victim of a gun, of that gun ever being fired. So uh, it, it is a danger, and people should be very con- concerned about that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, how the press is being used during this time. And between the constant refrain of fake news and these kind of wars between what the press is saying, what, what our leaders are saying, are we kind of undermining the role of media in their effort to help convey a legitimate message here in the pandemic? I think so. I think, you know, what we have really demonized the media in America over the last 10, 15 years, and it's changed the public understanding of the reliability and trustworthiness of our mainstream media outlets. And when it comes to a story like this, a public health crisis where you really need to rely on experts, and it's not really just a matter of perspective, uh, it's uh, it's a space where we really need sort of sources of information that we really trust. Um, but when uh, the president sees NBC and says, hey, you know, you're from Concast, not Comcast, he likes to emphasize, but Concast, um, then people are not likely to take seriously what they hear on that media outlet. And indeed, we saw that play out with the coronavirus itself, when uh, a lot of media uh, uh, reports uh, on Fox News, for instance, and other outlets uh, called this a democratic hoax, that this was basically uh, the discussion of this pandemic was just a way to get Trump. Um, And so we don't really have that same kind of trusted media sources. Uh, At the same time, we should recognize that those trusted media sources were really just a very small moment in time. Uh, As Ed knows about newspapers back in a lot of the periods that he's written about, uh, they were all almost always partisan shills and and had very little reliable information in them. And so maybe we're just moving back to an older era where the media is your chosen outlet and it tells you what you want to hear in the most outrageous way possible uh, without any real nuance or sophistication or uh, other sides uh, views taken seriously. Tell me, are these updates that we see every day by governors and the president, are, are they really designed to give a message of hope and the facts that we need, or are they really campaign and political rallies? You know, I think that we've seen governors really step up and play the role of 
both a bully that the bully pulpit and allows them to be to get tell people to get into their homes. We've seen governors really take command, uh, use the media as a way to communicate with the federal government. It does seem like television is the best way to communicate with Trump if you need to. Um, th this is not all for show. These are governors doing highly unpopular things, telling people to stay inside their homes and to stop uh, hanging out with the people that you want to go out with, uh, to put your restaurants, your favorite restaurants out of business and other stores. These are very unpopular actions. Uh, I think that, um, uh, that what we're seeing is a lot of leadership taking taking it seriously and, and taking a stand because they, they, it's the right thing to do. I agree with Adam. I think there's a little bit of both on these. There's a little bit of substance and there's a little bit of show. Uh, but I think that was true, say, with Franklin Roosevelt's amazing fireside chats. They were also they were both political, but they were also had a substantive element. They were trying to cajole and to to lead. And so when you get Trump, if he gets to put on uh, two hours of talking every day, he makes some political comments. He provides other information, and I think you see the same thing with uh, Governor Cuomo in New York. What can the government demand from both people and companies in order to bail out the situation? Well, the government can demand a lot, uh, in truth be told. You know, there is a law that Congress has passed uh, uh, giving the president the ability to nationalize certain industries for the purposes of uh, fighting this crisis. Uh, he could uh, invoke those laws to make ventilators, for instance, uh, or other kinds of equipment. Um, the president has not chosen uh, to do that. Um, but uh, there is some authority, really, to get people to, to force people to do what they don't want to do. It's interesting, again, that uh, you know we had uh, just in recent years, one of the biggest Supreme Court cases was whether uh, the Congress had the authority to force you to get off your couch and buy health care. And the idea that uh, uh, everyone would require health care at one point in their life uh, was kind of poo-pooed. Uh, but all of a sudden, health care, again, is now seen as something that you have kind of a right to. And we've seen one of the, the, one of the very first pieces of reform passed by Congress is uh, providing for free testing, for instance, uh, recognizing that actually you need this uh, help and you need this uh, assistance. It would be very interesting to see from the historian's perspective what really gets changed as a result of this pandemic. Uh, I know I, for one, am never going to shake anyone's hands or give a high five again. Those are done. Over. In an additional answer to your question, that the government can put any strings it wants to on the government on the aid it gives to corporations. They've already said that corporations getting this money are not supposed to use it for stock buyback. These are things that the people may well demand as part of the people bailing these places out. They may well demand all sorts of restrictions. We saw a few put in the first bill. As more and more bills roll out, we may see more, and they're perfectly free to do so. I was going to say, I think that's generally right, but I do think that there are some limits, right? So we couldn't see Congress insisting that companies uh, forsake making political expenditures uh, for receiving this money. You couldn't force uh, Hobby Lobby to forsake its constitutional rights and its religious liberty as one of the conditions that you impose. Uh, although the doctrine is pretty confused in the Supreme Court, there is a doctrine called unconstitutional conditions, and it says that while government generally can condition the money that it provides, uh, either in loan or in a direct grant form to entities, um, generally it can't force them to forsake constitutional rights. One question I have is, as you know, the Supreme Court has twice affirmed the legitimacy of, of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. There's a case again before the Supreme Court that addresses that issue. How do you think the pandemic may affect the Supreme Court decision to 
legitimize or not legitimize the Affordable Care Act? I don't really have a prediction about how it will influence them. Well, one of the things about the current Supreme Court and how it was comprised, the judges who are in those robes, I should say, are, are there because generally they have pretty firm judicial views on the major issues of American politics, uh, and they're chosen for that reason. And I think as a result, they uh, it's a pretty, I'd say, relatively headstrong group of people who are, are probably feeling that, that they won't let crises undermine their uh, their philosophies and their beliefs, but uh, the Supreme Court's already uh, institutionally been really affected. They're not hearing all the cases that they were hearing before. Um, they've put on hold a whole bunch of cases, including an important case involving Donald Trump and uh, whether uh, there'll be access, uh, Congress will have access to um, uh, his financial records and his tax, uh, his tax uh, forms of uh, previous years. Uh, so, uh, what do you see them doing about that? Do you see them making a ruling? I see them pushing it off to next term. Uh, I think a lot of people were hoping that a lot that ruling would come down before the election. Um, but I think that the, I think that I'd be surprised if the Supreme Court meets again. Uh, it has not announced that the term is over for the term, uh, but everything seems to be moving into January in terms of the cancellation schedule now. Uh, I expect the Supreme Court will be canceling the rest of its oral arguments uh, and waiting till next term to figure out what to have, what to do. Adam and Ed, as we wrap this chat up, are there any other constitutional issues that are really being stretched in this pandemic that perhaps we weren't prepared for in the past or are not sure how they're going to play out going forward? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of constitutional issues that are raised uh, by this uh, pandemic. We've seen stores that uh, sell guns that are being closed in some states as non-essential activities, uh, abortion clinics being shut down. Uh, obviously, that could have very serious consequences for people. We're seeing disability discrimination uh, by state or county hospitals that, with a shortage of ventilators, are uh, taking into account the health status of someone before they give them a ventilator. Uh, I think we are going to see a whole number of constitutional issues raised, and it kind of depends on how bad it gets. We've already seen states impose limits on travel into their states, uh, something that states probably certainly have the right to do under their traditional understanding of their police powers, but also runs uh, afoul potentially of the right to travel uh, that is guaranteed by the Constitution. Uh, so I think there's a whole bunch of really interesting constitutional issues. And when we turn to the election, we get Ed's uh, op-ed that uh, was uh, so important, uh, talking about the importance of voting. Uh, we're going to see some real issues with regards to how the pandemic plays out with the right to vote and access to the ballot. Um, uh, in ways that uh, will make maybe our debates over voter ID seem quaint and yesterday. Well, Adam Winkler, Jane Ulbrich, Ed Larson, let's get together again when we can think of something non-corona. Everybody stay safe, stay healthy. It has been a pleasure. See you next week on Politics. Meet me in the middle. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.